This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, where climate change meets the road, how warming temperatures and intensifying weather will affect infrastructure from the streets you drive on to bridges you cross, even to the school your child attends. This is an economic issue in addition to life safety, and there are new findings in that big federal climate change assessment that has just come out. CU engineering professor Paul Chanowski helped write this section on infrastructure. Hi, Paul. Good morning. Fort Collins specifically gets some attention in your report as an example of some of the impacts we might see from climate change. Just one example here. The report predicts that Fort Collins could go from an average of five days a year with over 90 degree temperatures to 15 days a year. How could that change the way people live their lives? It's going to have many impacts. There's one in just in terms of think of all the homes that don't have air conditioning. We've traditionally in this area always been worried about heating. Now we have a whole new concern about buildings, public buildings, homes that are going to need air conditioning. It's no longer going to be one of those just nuisance things of a few days a year. You're going to have maybe two or three weeks that you're going to have to deal with that. The other thing is really we were talking about roads. People don't think about roads. They're just here. We use them every day. But the fact is they're designed to handle a very narrow range of temperatures. And when it gets really hot, we all know about that feeling of going out onto a road and it just feels soft. Well, imagine trucks and traffic going over these when those roads are hot and soft. It starts breaking them down. The whole idea of having potholes is going to reach a whole new level, which will mean uh, new repairs to your cars, uh, potential increases in costs of public transportation. So just about everything that's in your daily existence is going to be affected by this intense heat that's going to come. To the question of air conditioning, I think of the energy that is required to power air conditioning units, the potential pollution as well that can come from them. So the repercussions from that uh, tend to ripple, don't they? They do. This is really almost a catch-22 situation. You have buildings that need new air conditioning, but air conditioning is one of the most uh largest users of energy. And where is this energy going to come from? If we keep doing more coal-fired power plants, then we're going to pollute the air that way. So in order to offset it, we really need investments in alternative energy. So we're looking at a two-sided problem. One, we need more energy. The other one, we need more cooling. We have to decide how we're going to balance this out. And to the question of roads, I mean, just in this last midterm election in Colorado, how to pay for roads was a huge issue. Uh, That is for the roads we have now under the conditions we have now. Uh, This raises all sorts of questions about, I suppose, taxation, about how we pay for roads that might age faster in the heat, and perhaps in investing in infrastructure that's just more resilient that has to be more expensive. This is a real problem. And in Colorado, we are a state that traditionally doesn't like to pay a lot of taxes or increase taxes, as we just saw in the election, as you said. But the fact is, we have to invest in infrastructure. And this takes the whole community, the whole state working together. So we're going to have to make a decision. How are we going to fund this? We don't have enough public revenue as it is to pay for this. So there's really only 
two major choices. Either the federal government has to come in and help, and there's no sign of that happening, or we're going to have to do additional revenue in the state. And that's going to be a tough choice for voters, and they're going to have to decide what really is important to them. Is it keeping the infrastructure resilient, or are we going to have more damages? It's a very black and white issue almost that we need funding to do this, and we're going to have to look at our own citizens to get the funding. I think that infrastructure is often talked about in association with jobs, with employment. Often when there's a question of economic stimulus, it's how can we invest in infrastructure, get roads built, bridges, etc. What's the connection between what you looked at for this federal climate report uh, when it comes to infrastructure and employment? Yeah, great question. Uh, there's, I guess if there's a bright side in this report, that is one in terms of there actually is a lot of construction that's going to need to be done to upgrade the roads, uh, reinforce bridges, and even update buildings like we were talking about cooling. This is going to be a lot of work that needs to be done over the next decade. This is not something that we're talking about 20 or 30 years from now. This is something that really is starting today. So if there is a bright side to all this, there is an economic stimulus in terms of there's a lot of jobs that are needed to upgrade our infrastructure. So that is one positive, I guess you could take out of the 1600-page report. We've taken a sort of micro look at the impacts on people and places. Let's broaden this out just a bit. What in general did this report find to be the biggest threats to infrastructure? The biggest threats that are out there really are could be divided into two different parts. One, you have the direct effects. So these would be more rain. Think about the floods that we had a few years ago. We're going to have more intense rain events, and that will lead to bridges being washed out, roads being washed out, especially in communities where there are small uh, uh, drainage areas. So that's going to be a very direct effect that happens. The other that's really there is this whole heating problem. There are so many things that are sensitive, as we talked about roads, uh, but eat buildings, all uh, railroads. So railroads. this is really one that we don't think of very often, that much of our packages that are delivered come from rail or aircraft. Much more difficult to do when it's hot weather. Our railroads are going to see much more delays because Trains can't run when they're up in the high 90s and 100 degrees. They have to be slowed down. So all of this that is we're getting used to overnight package delivery or two-day, that might not be possible a decade from now. And airports specifically, you mentioned those in passing. I guess the hotter weather affects them as well. It does very much. It's actually more difficult for planes to take off. And in fact, here in Denver, we have one of the longest runways because of the high altitude. When you combine high altitude with high temperatures, it makes the air very thin and it makes them difficult to take off. And so that means you have to reduce loads, not carry as many passengers or enough cargo. And we're already seeing that in Arizona, where there's times when they actually have to shut down the airport because it gets too hot. So the reliability of our infrastructure system gets significantly impacted the warmer it gets.
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Maybe you heard about that big federal climate change assessment that has come out. We're talking about a slice of it as it relates to infrastructure and an engineering professor at CU, Paul Shanowski, helped write that section of the report. And uh, Paul, before we wrap up and leave listeners apoplectic at all the bad news. <laughs> Maybe we can focus a bit on on some solutions. Um, Absolutely. We started with this idea of air conditioning and uh, the need to cool down if temperatures are warmer and if there are just warm, more warm days in the year. Part of me thinks you, you could look to the past for some answers. Just passive solar, how we build, and whether that might address some of the questions of of heat. Absolutely. There is a great opportunity here to look back at what we did before everything was climate controlled, air conditioned buildings. We can go back to the early 1900s, mid 1900s, and we can look at how we actually used passive solar, as you were saying, uh, more airflow in buildings. This region and many regions around the country grew and succeeded without climate-controlled buildings for decades. And we can go back and relook at what were the lessons that we learned? How did people actually use, uh, use the environment? How did they actually place buildings so it worked with the land rather than forcing what we were doing on the land? And there's a great opportunity here, if we want to take it, to be a leader globally and how we're rethinking what we're building. So there could be this whole new birth of a new generation of buildings and the way we design. We're just going to go back and look at what we did before, and let's bring it to the present and the future. It could be our, our, our ticket to actually solving this problem. That is engineering professor Paul Shinowski. He directs the environmental design program at CU Boulder, and he helped write a section on infrastructure in that big new national climate assessment. Okay, now you're going to hear Mission Control as the spacecraft InSight descended Monday towards Mars. You'll also hear the 13 seconds of heart-stopping silence right before touchdown. 50 meters, constant velocity. 37 meters. 30 meters. 20 meters. 17 meters, standing by for touchdown. Oh, my goodness, this must have felt like an eternity for them. Touchdown confirmed. (laughs) InSight is now safe and sound on Mars. The Colorado-built spacecraft traveled more than 300 million miles over six months. And then finally, a ping and a picture from Mars... Back with us is Beth Buck from Lockheed Martin in Littleton, which flew InSight to Mars. Hi, Beth. Hi there. Good morning. The first picture was a bit hard to read. It looked like a spotted egg to me. When you looked at it, were you happy with what you saw? Oh, absolutely. The fact that we were able to take a picture um, was amazing. Our camera covers are still on, so those spots are actually on those covers. That'll come off later this week, and um, you'll start seeing even better imagery. Okay, and what information did that image impart to you? What did it tell you about uh, InSight's landing? Well, at the very least, that we were alive at that point, right? And we were (laughs) on the ground. (laughs) And upright. Uh, That was important. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We knew we were down on the ground. Um, we weren't through the ground <laughs> too deeper than we wanted to be, uh, right on that surface, ready to do something. And then last night, we got the confirmation that our solar arrays had actually deployed and locked. Um, so that meant we were able to get power. We were getting data back with all you know, way more information about the health and safety of the spacecraft. And at that point, um, we were able to see that we were ready to go and start um, our deployment of instruments and the other surface operations. That's right. Experiments start soon, and those solar panels are open, collecting sunlight to recharge InSight's batteries. And uh, the lander will drill into the Martian surface and also measure some Mars quakes. I wonder what your team's role is now that InSight is safely on the ground. So we continue to provide the power and the brains of the spacecraft itself. So we'll be monitoring you know, the thermal properties, the power properties, making sure that we're not overheating things as we're deploying instruments or that while we're actually taking the science as well. Uh, so we'll continue to be supporting that for the entire duration of the prime science mission. You have to think about whether a spacecraft overheats. It sounds like an old car. Uh, no rest for the, for the weary. Your team at Lockheed Martin has another spacecraft reaching its target next Monday. Will you tell us briefly about OSIRIS-REx. Absolutely. Uh, that's just uh, one of our eight missions, and OSIRIS-REx is on their way to the asteroid Bennu. Uh, we're now about 80 kilometers out. We're slowly inching up on that asteroid. Uh, Monday is when we'll do the burn to start doing our orbit, where we're going to start mapping more of the poles. Um, and as we will close in on this asteroid closer and closer, it'll be the smallest body we've ever orbited. And we'll continue uh, to learn more about it, map the surface, and then determine where we're going to actually take a sample of this asteroid and then bring that back to Earth in a few years. And why? Just help us understand why we're, we're chasing down an asteroid. Sure. It's, um, you know, trying to find out more on how the solar system was formed and what those properties are of these asteroids that haven't been touched by some of the same things we've seen here on Earth help us, us develop better understanding of, again, how the solar system and our own planet was formed and what's happened to other areas, too, so we can learn about what the future may hold for us, too. Okay, so we'll watch that, and a little piece of this asteroid Bennu will be back on Earth at some point. That's the hope. Yes, that's that's definitely our plan, that we'll really determine what's the best place for scientific value as well as for safety of the spacecraft to take this sample. Um, so we'll study the asteroid for quite some time, uh, also learning how to fly so close to such a small body during that period, and then um, come back and, and drop this off. Uh, right now, the plan is to take this sample in 2020, and we'll have the sample back here in 2023. Cool. Thanks, Beth. Absolutely. No problem. Beth Buck is Missions Operations Program Manager at Lockheed Martin in Littleton, which on Monday landed the InSight spacecraft on Mars. One of the first things InSight did on arrival is snap a picture, and we'll post that to CPR.org. People with dementia can forget even the most critical pieces of their lives. We've been married. Are we married? We are. We are 38 years. And Whoa. So, yeah, and it's been a good marriage. 38 years? They can also wander away and may get behind the wheel, endangering themselves and others. Now there's growing concern about another risk. NPR's Melissa Block recently reported on the increasing numbers of people with dementia who also own guns. The issue brought her to Colorado. She's going to share some of this reporting with us. Hi, Melissa. Hey, how you doing, Ryan? Doing well. We just heard from a couple you interviewed, Ed and Kathy. They live in Aurora, yeah. 
asked you not to use their last name. Um, Ed has Alzheimer's disease, and he owns a gun. Just tell us briefly about him. Yeah. So Ed, uh, a veteran, a retired veteran, they've been married 38 years, and um, his dementia has progressed. As you heard there, he he couldn't remember how long he'd been married. Um, There are some things he remembers clearly, but there's a lot he doesn't. And there was one night when his wife, Kathy, realized that he didn't recognize her. I think a lot of folks who have family members with dementia will know that that sinking feeling of somebody looking at you and clearly not knowing who you are. Um, He uh, went into their bedroom and locked and barricaded the door and said through the door, told her, I have a gun. And the thing was, Kathy knew there was a gun in that room. She didn't know if he had found it, but she was terrified that he had. Um, She was worried about calling the police because she worried that things might escalate and get even more potentially dangerous. So she waited in a chair outside that room in the hallway all night until in the morning he opened the door. It became clear he didn't have the gun. And she took it to the basement, hid it away, hid the ammunition. Um, and that was the resolution of that. But it just spoke to an issue that a lot of families are are facing and we're not hearing as much about. We hear a lot about driving and taking the car keys away. This conversation is is not as public. And it's one that really interested me. Prior to that night, had Kathy given thought to the fact that there was a firearm in the house and that Ed might react this way? Well, she had she had thought about it to the extent that she had hidden it, um, but it was still close by. I mean, like a lot of people, they had a gun for home protection. They felt safer with a gun, um, and she did, having it in their room. But at this point, she realized, okay, this is no longer this is no longer viable. It's going to go away. I want to understand the scope of the problem. How many people with dementia have a gun in their home? Well, here are the estimates. There are about 7 million people living with dementia in the United States now. And just to give you a sense of the progression, that number, as our population ages, that number is supposed to double, expected to double in about 20 years. Um, It's estimated that about half of people over 65, and most of the people with dementia are over 65, either own a gun or live in a household with someone who does. So that gives you some extent of the problem of, of the intersection or the collision of those two groups. You talked to a psychologist for your story, and one problem she says is that a significant other or relative might find it hard to imagine that their loved one suffering from dementia is even capable of violence. Most caregivers tell us, yeah, I've been married to him for 50 years, he would never hurt anyone, and then it's talking to caregivers about, yes, he would not, but his disease might hurt someone. It's that the disease might hurt someone. Uh, that yeah, is, which is such an interesting distinction, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. It caught my attention for sure in your reporting. And that's the voice of Jolene Sussman, who works at the VA Medical Center here. She Mm -hmm. specializes in dementia. Uh, uh, Melissa, are we being alarmist or do we know of cases where a person with dementia has seriously injured someone with a gun? There certainly are cases. Um, there's no database that collects these, but if you if you scan through news stories, they, they do turn up either seriously injured or or in fact killed a family member or themselves. Um, in fact, I heard from a listener after this story aired. I heard from a number of listeners who mentioned that they'd been wrestling with this problem and had resolved it one way or the other. But one story in particular, really tragic. Um, uh, the woman who wrote to me, her grandparents, her uh, her grandfather had dementia and had had slipped quite far into it, and um, he ended up uh, shooting and and fatally injuring, killing his, his wife, her grandma, the the listener's grandmother, and then 
shooting himself. Um, so they both died. And uh, she, in her email, she gave me permission to read this part. She said, I know my grandpa would never, ever have shot his wife of nearly 50 years if he was in his right mind. Getting back to what we said earlier about not wanting to think that your family member could could progress to that state. And she also said that in covering the, the issue of this, she has no doubt that there is another family facing this exact possibility. I really do think that this story could prevent terrible things from happening. And that I hope, is one outcome that families confront this issue, start thinking about it as one of the many, many things that families have to have to worry about with, with family members with dementia. Back to that couple in Aurora. You mentioned that Ed is a veteran. I wonder if this disproportionately mm-hmm. affects veterans who perhaps are more comfortable with firearms, um, maybe are more likely to have them in their homes. Yeah, I mean, a, n- a number of the, the folks that I've heard from either their loved one is a veteran or maybe a retired police officer or in in this case of the the letter writer who wrote to me uh, her grandfather was a retired FBI agent so it's people who have you know a deep connection to their firearm might feel that it's part of their identity which is part of the reason why it can be so hard to get guns out of the home um in fact Jolene Sussman the doctor with the VA in, in Aurora who whom we you mentioned earlier, we heard her talking, said one of the the words that she likes to use is talking to to families about retiring their guns, not taking them away. But in the same way that you might retire from driving, you can retire your firearms. Um, And they find that that can be a more palatable way to have what can be a really difficult discussion. So the language in these conversations is is important. You also Mm -hmm. mentioned in your story the idea of something of an advanced directive for firearms. Yeah, and this was an idea that really intrigued me. It was it was brought up to me by another uh, doctor in in Denver, Dr. Marion Betts, Emmy Betts, um, at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And it's one of the things that they suggest that you might, in the same way that you might have an advanced directive for medical conditions and medical care, that family members at early on, when this conversation is still possible have a conversation, draw up some sort of agreement with a family member about what he or she would want to happen with their firearms. Who might they want to give them to? Is there a family member? Would they want to turn them into the police? What should happen to them? It's not legally binding, but it would be one way to get that conversation started. And on our website, there is um, a link to one of the sample agreement that a family might consider using. We'll post to that CPR.org. Just briefly, you you talked about the fear that that Aurora couple had of calling the police, of escalating Mm -hmm. the situation. And it just makes me think that this is an issue for law enforcement as well. Sure. And this is a really interesting point that I hadn't thought of before. So some people will say, well, you know, what what we did was we took the, the ammunition out of the gun so he could still, he or she, mostly he though, could still hold the gun um, and it, he wouldn't notice that the ammunition wasn't there. Well, that's fine up to a point. But if there were to be a case where something escalated, where the 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 person with dementia went outside, was with a gun, a neighbor saw them, police maybe came. They have no way of knowing that that gun isn't loaded. And you can imagine what consequences might come. So that is another thing to think about, that the safest thing to do, um, folks in, in this field will tell you, is to get the gun out of the home, period. Thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Absolutely. Great to be here, Ryan. Thanks. NPR's Melissa Block. She recently reported from Colorado on the dangers of people with dementia and access to firearms. Still to come, a refresh of a Western classic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The American Southwest has changed a lot since 1968, when the late writer Edward Abbey published Desert Solitaire, A Season in the Wilderness. The memoir set in Arches National Park has inspired countless people to visit the desert and to take a stand for the environment. But critics have since labeled him racist and sexist. Now, 50 years after that iconic work, Colorado writer Amy Irvine of Norwood imagines talking with Abby. Her new book is Desert Cabal, A New Season in the Wilderness, and she's in our Grand Junction studio. Hi, Amy. Good morning. You live in Colorado, but you're a sixth-generation Utahn and an outdoors woman and public lands activist. You were also a national park ranger. When Ed Abbey died, his friends buried him in a secret desert grave. In your book, you envision hiking to that grave, sitting down in the sweltering sun and telling the old park ranger what you think over cold beers and rye whiskey. Would you start by reading the passage from the bottom of page 33 for us? Sure. You and I, we are complicit. We took ranger jobs not because we wanted to show people the places we loved deeply and privately. No, we took those jobs for a more selfish reason, so we could make bank while spending our days in the wild. We winced when folks asked if we, if they could see the place in less than an hour, and we seethed when the new graffiti was gouged into rocks. We picked up trash, pointed to porter potties, then gritted our teeth when we had to say, thank you and come again. It bought us both space and time. All the while, we secretly hoped that some of them, any of them, would fall in love and madly. Why do you and why did Abby, do you think, want National Park visitors to fall in love with the wilderness? Well, I think that we knew that there was a lot to be gained for humanity by engaging in, in the wild world in a way that we haven't for a very long time. And we knew, I think the selfish reason was we knew that if we could get people on board, they would advocate for these public lands and be part of that democratic process that's at the very heart of uh, the idea of the American West. We'll get into what you see as the troublesome aspects of Abby's work in particular, but what was it that affected so many readers of his work? Oh, I think... He framed uh, the American West in a way we hadn't really imagined before then. Before before it was sort of still the unknown frontier. It was a place where we could still sort of um, homestead, carve out an existence in sort of a close relationship to the land. But it was very a very resource-intensive or re- resource uh, use. It was a wise use, to use the old term, um, way of thinking about landscape. And Abby really taught us to see it as a place where we could revive our own 
spirits and a place where we could think clearly, a place where we could live outside of the thing, the conventions that that he he saw maybe more before many of us did as being oppressive and soul sucking. Do you think that there are so many people that are moving to the West in part because of Edward Abbey? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's amazing in my travels across the U.S. to teach writing workshops or speak or read. Um, I'm always astonished that it's usually 80% of the audience that will raise their hand when I say, how many of you know Edward Abbey's work? A part of his uh, environmentalism really were some strong opinions about population control and its connection to the environment. Here's a clip of Edward Abbey during a PBS interview from 1982. I guess I'm sort of a not on the subject of Planned Parenthood. I think we should plan it a lot more intensively. I'd be in favor of revising the the income tax structures in such a way as to reward single people, childless couples, penalize uh, heavy breeders, make people who have say, more than one or two children pay extra taxes instead of less. Make that a national public policy. You know? Encourage small families. And that means cutting off immigration, too, or restricting it to a very low level. How do you respond to his ideas about immigration and population control? Well, my response is twofold. Um, I Obviously, I think we understand the ramifications of having such public policy um, certainly there are problems with that, that we can, we can define as racist and sexist. And, uh, so I, I would be, and still buck at his suggestions about those things. He also said something explicitly about the Navajo needing to con- control their population in particular. So again, sort of that, that racist and somewhat elitist kind of, um, conversation that he continued over the years was not uh, favored by most environmentalists. Um, in fact, I think the environmental community has, at least in, in Western public lands, um, advocacy, people have shied very much away from addressing population at all and, and immigration as part of the population issue. And I think that's been, I, I understand why we've kept those two two. Uh, issues separate, but the truth is that they intersect with one another beautifully and dangerously, <laughs> and uh, makes it very a much more complicated problem to solve when you start to think about um, the fact that the the Ute Mesa, uh, White Mesa Utes in southeastern Utah are drinking very poisoned water from the uranium tailings piles that are piled outside of Blanding, Utah. Um, we always see poverty and sort of racial segregation intersecting with environmental issues. And I think we're at a point now where we just, we cannot separate those out. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with author Amy Irvine of Norwood, Colorado. Her new book is Desert Cabal, A New Season in the Wilderness. It is something of a response 50 years later to Desert Solitaire, A Season in the Wilderness, by Edward Abbey, published in 1968. And I just want to remind listeners that was such a tumultuous year of civil unrest and war and assassinations when the U.S. seemed as though it would tear itself apart. And so it's against that backdrop that the book 
hits shelves. You know, we, we've had quite a few interviews on this program about diversifying the outdoors. I remember an African-American woman who told me that the forest doesn't necessarily feel safe for people of color. You know, that's where lynchings happened. Um, a gay outdoorsman who expressed fear about being open in the outdoors, where he could be targeted. Uh, and here you have Ed Abbey writing as a straight white male. Uh, is there a certain privilege in his perspective? There is a huge privilege. Um, the whole notion of solitude in the wild, and you alluded to the the way an African-American woman might feel in the woods. I've had a sim- similar experience where I, I was actually working at a uh, writing conference at a retreat center, a beautiful, very peaceful place um, with lots of yoga and meditation, all that kind of stuff. And there was a group of women, war veterans who were there, war veterans with PTSD that were there for sort of a healing weekend retreat. And as I was walking through the forest one day, I come across a woman, an African-American woman, who is just huddled and clearly in absolute terror, some sort of PTSD or flashback type of experience. So I walked up to her and asked if she was okay and if I could help. She grabs my arm and says, get me out of here. You have to get me out of here. And I said, okay, let's find our way. And it's okay. You're safe here. And she said, honey, don't you ever tell a black woman she's safe in the woods. And that was a real watershed moment for me. Like, right, solitude is a construct that applies to folks that have the time and the means and Mm. the able-bodiedness to get out and explore places. And if we really want to protect these places that are no longer just about spiritual and athletic rejuvenation and aesthetics. Um, But really, at this point, um, whole landscapes matter in terms of saving the planet and avoiding climate collapse. Um, We need to build a much broader constituency for public lands protection. And that means including indigenous voices. And that group, that demographic is on the rise in wonderful, powerful ways. I feel so hopeful about the future in terms of what's happening in southeastern Utah in particular. Um, But we have to make, we need to start asking questions about what is beyond our little table of nature writers that sit in what I sort of call, jokingly call the white the ivory cabin, the way we talk about academia is the ivory tower. <laughs> the ivory um, cabin, I see. <laughs> we, it's really important that we open that door and, and walk out into the wild and see who else is out there and what kind of experience they're having and what kind of stories they're telling and what their needs are in terms of such a place. Right now, it's very narrowly defined. You write about people who want to protect the wilderness and those who see it as an adventurous sport playground, as well as folks who feel like their property rights are being trampled on. Do you, do you think Desert Solitaire would get published today? Oh, I, I'm glad you asked that question, Ryan, because I think it's something I think about all the time, and I certainly thought about as I was trying to have this conversation with Abby. Um, I, th- I think he would be challenged to get it published today. At, at least, at the very least, it would have been published with a whole lot of heavy uh, editing around issues about different populations of people and uh, the way he speaks about women and sort of that greed about wanting to possess the land as though the way one desires a beautiful woman. Um, I think that kind of objectification has been dangerous. Um, the, The line that I wrote in there, the land's not the thing, it's the buzz, is sort of that you know, we want to be titillated and we want to be entertained and we want to recreate and we want to just sort of have this experience but I think if we if we don't objectify women that way, we can also choose to not objectify landscapes that way. Oh. And what does that look like if we 
no longer have a consumptive type of relationship with the land. And as much as we all want to get out and have this solitary experience that, that Abby has articulated so beautifully for us, you know, the planet's getting really crowded and we need broader constituencies to care about these places and um, the resources that they provide for life on Earth. Um, it means we have, to, we have to make room for them. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Norwood author Amy Irvine's new book is Desert Cabal, A New Season in the Wilderness. She has written it 50 years after nature writer Ed Abbey's original Cult of the Wild, Desert Solitaire. So all this year we've been reflecting on the events of 1968, inviting Colorado artists to cover their favorite songs from 50 years ago. When The Birds released Sweetheart of the Rodeo, the album's country style was such a radical departure from the rock band's sound, their counterculture fan base tuned out, and the album was a commercial flop. Its legacy, however, has evolved in some time. It's now celebrated as a seminal album for the country rock movement of the 1970s, influencing acts like The Eagles, Emmy Lou Harris, The Grateful Dead, and years later, Denver's own Last of the Easy Riders, who shared their version of the song 100 Years From Now. One Hundred Years From Now by The Birds, as performed 50 years later by Denver's Last of the Easy Riders. Trying to think of that perfect gift for a loved one? How about a good book? This time of year, we get reading recommendations, all with a flavor of Colorado or the West. Nicole Magistro is owner of the Bookworm of Edwards. Hello again, Nicole. Hello, Ryan. And Bethany Stroud is the buyer for the Tattered Cover Bookstores. Hi, Bethany. Hi. Uh, Nicole, there's apparently a book you'd like to give Everyone you know. It's quite an endorsement. What is this book? Yes, the book is called The Four Sacred Gifts by Dr. Anita Sanchez. She is a Boulder-based author. um, And this book is just the antidote for all the holiday stress that's about to come crashing down the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, she has a wonderful way of quelling our anxiety about 
the world today um, through four different values she shares um, that are really ancient wisdom from indigenous people. So um, she talks about hope. She talks about uh, healing unity and forgiveness. Um, I personally have reflected a ton about this book and have found so many wonderful nuggets to keep throughout my regular life. What sort of perspective does she bring, uh, Anita Sanchez? She she has a background as um, Mexican-American and Aztec woman. She has a PhD in organizational development and is a fascinating speaker um, who works with corporations, but she's really looking inward in terms of the soul and helping us to remember what's most important uh, to us as humans and connecting with each other. Is there some nugget you would share with us (laughs) that if we don't get the occasion to read this book will help us through the holidays? Yes. You know, my favorite nugget that she talks about is listening with the softest part of your ear. Listening with the softest part of your ear. And I think that's great for parents. Uh, I'm a parent of a seven-year-old. It's great for um, the workplace. It's great for when we're talking one-on-one about topics that require intense listening. So, Okay. The book is Four Sacred Gifts by Anita Sanchez. Bethany, you recommend a collection of magazine articles. Tell us about this. Yeah, so this is called Mile High Stories, and it is essays selected from the past 25 years of 5280 magazine. And it really is like the Best American Essays collection, which comes out every year. But every piece in this book is about Colorado. Um, There's It talks about everything. There's a beautiful ode to the preeminent Colorado author, Kent Hariff. There's uh, a wonderful piece about the Colorado Rockies, the baseball team. There's a wonderful piece about looking for treasure in the Colorado Rockies, the mountains. Uh, I really felt that coming to this, if you've lived in Colorado for the past 25 years, it's like revisiting um, parts of your life. And if you're brand new, I really felt that this was a, a contemporary overview of Denver and the entire Colorado state. And it turns out that the holidays might be the perfect time to do readings of essays as opposed to whole books. Yes, in bite-sized. Bite-sized, Mile High Stories, 25 years of our best writing from the editors of 5280. And you don't have to memorize these titles. We'll put them on our website later today, cpr.org. Nicole, this book, Ski Soldiers, it's a true life adventure story. That's right. Um, Louise Borden has written uh, an adventure story for kids based on the life of Pete Seibert, who was a 10th Mountain Division soldier and founder of Vail Ski Area. Um, It's an amazing book that will um, inspire kids and adults. Um, Pete went to war and came back injured. He thought he would never ski again. Um, But of course, the history tells us otherwise. Um, I love the full size photographs that complement the verse going on in the book to really kind of connect kids with the real history of Colorado. And it totally begs for a field trip up the mountains to Camp Hale. Good to Camp Hale. And of course, it was many of those skiing soldiers who founded the resorts we know today. That's right. Skiing is such a part of our Colorado heritage. Ski Soldier by Louise Borden. Uh, Bethany, you brought a young adult novel that you say old adults (laughs) will like as well. What's this? This is called From Twinkle with Love by Sandia Menon, and this book is fun. It's just, it's so much fun. 
Um, I sort of talk about this book as being for all of the thousands of people that watched the recent movie To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Um, I personally know many adults who loved and watched that movie. Uh, uh, The author lives in Colorado Springs, and the book is set in the Springs. Having a young adult novel set in Colorado is really rare. Um, And this is the story of a young Indian-American filmmaker who's writing letters to all of her favorite female directors as she gets for the first time to make a movie. Uh, She's so excited. And then, of course, there's a fun uh, romance as well. So Twinkle is the main character, this protagonist, this film-obsessed Indian-American main character. You know, we interviewed the author, Sanja Menon, about this book and about Twinkle, this character. Um, How aware she is that she and her family don't have the money her classmates have. Uh, And Menon said that was a lot like her own high school experience. I grew up fairly wealthy in India, but when my family moved here to the U.S., I was 15, and we lost all our wealth. We lived in free housing uh, on my street, and, you know, on the way to school, it was very common to see drug dealers and prostitution, and somebody was stabbed on my street for $11. So it was a completely different shift coming from where I did to where I landed. And I knew what it felt like to not belong in a high school full of kids who had lawyers and engineers and doctors as parents. My dad was an engineer too, but I didn't live that kind of lifestyle. Okay, so that's the author Sanja Menon reflecting on her own experience, which is reflected in this book, again, uh, from Twinkle with Love. Uh, Nicole, what else did you bring for us as holiday gift ideas? Well, I brought a cookbook. I normally uh, love to cook during the holidays, and this is no exception. I mean, High Alpine Cuisine, written by Marlon, Marla Meredith, is a great ode to the kinds of Alpine uh, food we think of. Um, have you ever had Kaiserschmarrn? Kaiser, Kaiserschmarrn. No, oh that my sounds gosh. It's like a you, mean German soldier. It is an amazing pancake fluffiness with fruit and plums and powdered sugar, and it comes in a big cast iron pan. And once you have it, you will never not order it again. In fact, in this cookbook, you can make it at home. Um, the cast iron pan is a major piece of equipment um, to complete the recipes in high alpine cuisine, but it's a paperback cookbook that's a great um, entry into Austrian, uh, Swiss, and American cooking um, that you see around ski resorts. It's just the kind that warms your heart. High alpine cuisine. The nice thing about a cookbook about high alpine cuisine is you know they're going to have uh, recipes altered for altitude. Yes. That's given. That's right. You don't have to make any adjustments. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, Bethany, for those who want to look through maybe beautiful photographs instead of an intense read, tell us about your pick for a so-called coffee table book. Yeah. I brought in this book called The Continental Divide Trail, which is about exactly what it says. Um, And I will say this book has gorgeous photographs, including a whole section on the Colorado Divide, uh, but it also does have a ton of uh, really interesting and I would also say sort of bite-sized information, including um, I was just telling Nicole that I had not known that America the Beautiful was written about the Continental Divide. Uh, Yeah, I had no idea. Um, It also talks about the first female through-hikers, Franklin Roosevelt's um, fireside chat about the Divide. There's just a lot of great 
uh, tidbits of information in this. You know, I think the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail, I think they get so much more attention than the Continental Divide Trail. So it's nice to see some love for Colorado Zone here. Yes. And I mean, the vistas in this book are breathtaking. Okay. The Continental Divide Trail uh, as a coffee table book. Tell us about this. Speaking of mountains, living beneath the Colorado peaks. What's this, Nicole? Well, uh, Bud and Betsy Knapp were the team behind Architectural Digest and Bon Appetit magazines. Oh, wow. They have a beautiful uh, ranch in Eagle County uh, that is a total tribute to environmentally friendly luxury, really. Uh, the coffee table book is uh, storytelling about the place, about connecting to the land and the wildlife there, and also photographs of beautiful architecture. Um the book is told over the course of many years and every season at the ranch. Um, and I think people will love this book if they like the books of John Fielder or Ralph Lauren. Or Ralph Lauren. That's right. Or his clothes. <laughs> Living, Living Beneath the Colorado Peaks by Bud and Betsy Knapp. Okay, finally, Bethany, a book for uh, some of the youngest readers once again. Tell us about Down by the River. Yes, I think that this is the perfect holiday gift for all of the youngest children. Um, this book is about a day spent fly fishing with a young boy, his mother and grandfather. It's about sharing a love of the outdoors with your entire family and then passing that love on to the next generation. The illustrations of the mountains of the golden leaves are gorgeous. Okay, Down by the River by Andrew Weiner and illustrated by April Chu. Once again, we'll post these selections Gifts for yourself or others of the literary variety to CPR.org. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. Bethany Strout, chief buyer for the Tattered Cover Bookstores. Nicole Magistro, owner of The Bookworm of Edwards. We've been getting their recommendations for Colorado and Western-themed books that would make great holiday gifts. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.